This episode is sponsored by Dreams Los Angeles, a lifestyle shop inspired by surrealism located in Atwater Village, LA. Stop by 3229 Glendale Boulevard for everything you need for your body, mind, and space, including apparel, apothecary, sexual wellness, products, homewares, books, and kids. And be sure to follow them on Instagram at Dreams Los Angeles. And by Cuckoo French Classes, a bi-coastal school offering group and private French classes in person and online to adult students of all levels. Cuckoo LA is located in the heart of Silver Lake and focuses on modern French. Join their Francophile community for fun events and cultural workshops, such as regular wine tastings in partnership with Vinovore. Book your free trial class today on cuckoofrenchclasses.com, spelled C-O-U-C-O-U, or frenchclasses.com. life is interesting and uh, when stars are aligned things happen welcome to wine splaining the podcast that peels back the journeys of women shaping the wine business i'm Koli denhan and i'm excited to present today's guest nasiki biela Nisiki Biela is the owner and winemaker of the revolutionary brand Aslina Wines. Nisiki is famously known as the first black female winemaker in South Africa. This is an incredible feat, all on its own, but hearing her story of how she has gotten to this place, the glass ceilings that she has shattered, her resilience and drive to continually inspire the people following in her footsteps is beyond inspiring. It's truly magnificent. She has won multiple awards, is involved in groundbreaking programs, all while continuing to make fantastic wines. Despite all that she has come up against and continues to fight for, Nasiki is an absolute delight to talk to, with a wicked sense of humor, the most vibrant smile on her face, and a unique insight into the wine world that isn't always talked about. Welcome to Wine Splaining, Nasiki. Thank you very much for having me. Good <laughs> Afternoon. Good afternoon. So Nasiki actually just arrived to Los Angeles for a several week long U.S. wine trip. We had a great uh, dinner last night after a Vinovore event. And I was wondering, after a long conversation at the table and before we dig into your life, uh, have you had a chance to do any L.A. shopping yet? Any any dresses? No, I haven't had. <laughs> it's like I've been away from the market for this long. So the little chance that I got to come in, they're like, okay, we've got this and this and this and this. <laughs> so no dresses yet. Okay. No dresses yet. But um, Courtney has promised me that she's going to try and sneak something. Okay, good. So yeah. Yeah, we gave her some suggestions. Okay, so there's so much to talk about. Um, but I'd really like to start at the beginning. Uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I grew up from um, Mahlabatini, Ulundi in South Africa, uh, in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, which is more east of uh, South Africa. Um, I think I grew up, so I grew up in a village where village is like just black people. I grew up under my grandmother's guidance and basically, let's see, what, what else was there? I think it was nice to be, I'm going to call it a boy in the family. 
because we didn't have boys at home. So I had to look after the cows, um, be the one milking the cows, um, but at the same time doing other chores that girls do. Uh, so that for me was, it was more fun, you know. Um, I think what I, I know it sounds weird, but what I liked the most was when my grandmother would be saying, oh, you need to cook one, two, and three. And my grandfather would be like, no, she can't cook because she has to go fetch the cows. <laughs> so it was like one of those. And like, because I realized, even, I think even till today, um, doing the cooking and all those things, the house chores, it's just, it feels like a job than doing anything else that's outside that. So it was more like the farming kind of stuff that yes, you really the, called you? Yeah, I, I, like I enjoy that than really cooking. And typically in your village, that would be something that a boy would do. Is That's typically what the boy will do. Handle the animals. Handle the animals. But also I think because I used to go fetch wood in the forest. So I'll go do that. That's that's For me, that was the part of work that girls do that I was enjoying. It's outside. outside. So I'm more on the outdoor work than indoors. Got it. That makes yeah. sense. So at that time in your life, when you were much younger and before you were you know, thinking about careers and, and where you wanted to go, what were you dreaming of being? Okay, let me just go back first, refer to when I went to do my grade R, which is the first, I don't know what you call it, at school. Grade R? Grade R, yeah. Okay. So it's like going to preschool of some sort. Okay. And then you get to the first grade of the school. Mm -hmm. um, one of the teachers asked me what I wanted to, to become. And I was like, I think my understanding at that time was very weird or interesting because I said I wanted to be a, a white person. Wow. Um, and then she, when she asked why, and I was like, well, because I, I used to see them, in, in, and I, I remember I used to see them passing by once in a blue moon driving a car. And so they're the only one I've seen with who owns shops, their own businesses. Um, so, yeah. So that's all I could say. Okay, they are doing certain things that we're not doing. So I want to do that. But my interpretation as a child is thinking that you started to be that. But actually, when I look at it, basically, I just wanted to be a business person. Okay. You know, that is like the interpretation that I'm looking at it now to say, you know, because what the people say, want to be umlungu. Uh, it's more like being a boss in a way. So, and then um, when I got to high school, I was like, I want to do engineering. Okay. I wanted to do engineering and my grandmother wanted me to do land surveying. And um, I was like, land surveying, okay, I'll do that. And then there was a phase of engineering with the school kids and I was like, okay, cool. I'll do uh, civil engineering. Because civil engineering. Civil engineering because that was going to be what I want to do, but at the same time, my grandmother will know that I'm doing land surveying in it because it's part of land surveying. Okay. So I was like, okay, that's great. And then I got to metric and I was like, oh, chemical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting how things like they literally changed in the space. And so I was like, okay, I'll do chemical engineering. That's when I started applying for bursaries to do chemical engineering and getting those letters saying we regret, you know, and those were not nice letters. Um, how old were you at this time? Uh, I was 17. 17. Okay. Yeah. So like at the end of high school. End of high school. You're starting to apply for, you know, to get into colleges for yes. the engineering part of things. At this point, did you have an understanding of, um, you know, that you didn't have to be white to be a boss? And, and Now I understood now, that. Yeah, yes. you did. Now, now I understood that, that actually, no, you don't have to be why to be something, you know, mm -hmm. so you can be, it's it, to separate, to have that separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so you're getting these nasty letters. Nasty letters. And um, basically, I didn't get any scholarship. And then um, I got a one of the extended family members requested that um, if I could help them, because I was looking for a job now, actively looking for a job. And then they needed someone to help them in the house in Durban. And I went to my grandmother to ask if I could she could allow me to have to take that opportunity and she was not happy with me she was like your mom has worked as a domestic worker and i cannot see you being doing the same thing mm-hmm. you know and i had to beg her and make her see that look this is for me is a stepping stone it's not a it's going to be a stepping stone for me to do something you know how did you see that as an opportunity or a stepping stone because I was going to be moving from a village mm-hmm. where there's no access to stuff going to the city where there's access to things where I'm going to see things differently. I'm going to have a view of of viewing things differently. And it was actually, in fact, a, a stepping stone. Because I got to Durban and they, when I was working, they offered me to say, okay, fine, if you want to study, you can do your chores in the morning and in the evening. We'll pay for your studies to go and study. Apply. So I applied yeah. for chemical engineering at Mangosudu Technicon. I got accepted. And then uh, at church, they had given us application to apply for nursing at uh, one of the hospitals. And I got accepted. For nursing. <laughs> for nursing. And then there was this um, call from um, school to say, hey, there's a scholarship for winemaking in Stellenbosch University. So then I had to apply for that too. And I remember, so the mother in the house, which is, again, I call her my mom, she was like, um, you know what, because she was a nurse. And she said, nursing is not going to be the best place. At that time, there was still commotion within, within the nursing, um, within the government in terms of nurses and all those things. Um, the job was not really... Safe? No, it was safe, but there was all of these, what do you call it, um, loopholes, because it was a new minister, this must change, this must change, this. So it was the unsettling or uncertainties within the industry. So not very, like, stable. It wasn't stable at that time. And then so she said to me, I think maybe if you do, either you're going to take the chemical engineering that we're going to pay for, or you can take the the winemaking, you know? And then she said, but again, nobody knows what winemaking is. (laughs) Might be interesting. So you had no idea what, I mean, you had to have some idea what winemaking was. I didn't, zero. So what I thought was winemaking, I was thinking of hunters and crossbows, of which I only find out that those were ciders. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I had zero, zero understanding of of, of winemaking. You knew it was an alcohol. Of some I knew sort. it was alcohol. An alcoholic beverage. Yeah, yeah. but it, how does it come to being the way it is? Or have, have I seen it before? Nope, I haven't. Wow. So that was that was the, the, the thing. So, um. So when that opportunity to apply for, for winemaking came, and then I applied for that, and then I got accepted, and then I got to fill in the forms for bursaries, which is a scholarship from South African Airways. And I remember when they called me, they said, do you know that it's in Afrikaans? And I was like, no, I know, but I'll learn. You know, so it was, I was like... <laughs> so you didn't speak the language that they were teaching? No, this in. Oh. no. No. That sounds like fun. So Afrikaans <laughs> is like Dutch. And again, uh, for us, that is like more a language of oppression. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's not a language that you ever really wanted to learn. No, uh, I wasn't interested in the language. <laughs> was this a red flag for you? I mean... It wasn't. No. I, 
even now when I look back and I'm thinking, why those things never blocked me? Why didn't I think, oops, if they say this? Uh, and I think I'm grateful for that, that the way I view life now and the way I view life earlier, it seems to be consistent, even though I never, I didn't understand why and how. But the way I view it, it was like, okay, well, well I need to do something. I'll learn to do it. I'll figure it out. It's, you know. So Afrikaans is this language of that represented oppression to you. This is what most white people spoke in the area. Uh, and this was obviously something then that was probably never offered to be taught to you in high school or? Well, like you were learning just a tiny bit of it, but not something that you can write home about, not something that can actually save you if you were lost on the street. Mm-hmm. Just a high and by, it's like hola and see. That's it. Okay. That's it. So, right. um, so I didn't really understand the language. But I think for me, when they said it's in Afrikaans, I was like, oh, I'll learn because this is me looking at things. I'm in my, I've done, I've studied, I've finished my trick. So, what is, I learned all these things that I didn't know. So, what's new? That's another thing. <laughs> it's like, well, what's new? You know? And then I then, um, so you chose this over the chemical engineering opportunity. Yes. Because this was a scholarship. This, this was, was a scholarship. Yeah. Okay, it's a scholarship. <laughs> so and I remember with my sister when then I was going to uh, university. Um so they accompanied me to the bus station and we were both crying because now it's like we going we're parting ways. But I guess it's one of those like we've been together now for almost like what two years when I was working at home cleaning and doing all those stuff she finally she's like she had a closer sister now and then all of a sudden I'm going but she's happy for me but at the same time it's painful mm-hmm. so yeah so did the scholarship include like where you'd be staying and yes so it lodging was, so you you're it was it. lodging food and studies wow so, yeah, it was a full scholarship. And I think it was because also when I was applying, they also wanted to see the payslip. And at that time, obviously, my grandmother was taking care of me. And her payslip per month was like 400 rand, 420 rand a month, her pension. Is that very low? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know the conversion rate. Uh. That's less than, that's less than like, that's about $30 a month. Oh, my gosh. That's what she's living <laughs> off of? And... And basically taking care of about eight kids at home. Oh, my. So they're giving scholarships to people who's, you know, to better their families. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Well, that's positive. You know, so it, it, it was that. And so for me, I think the reality kicked in when I obviously got to Stellenbosch. And I was like, okay, the Africans that we're talking about is this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So this was... Um a big change in your life. You're in Stellenbosch, you're in university. So how did you start to study when you also didn't know the language? Did you have to study the language side by side? Uh, How were you communicating? So um, I think, okay, so my first day at the university, um, this is me arriving and then I'm looking. Okay, first, let me just take it back when I was like in the bus coming to the Western Cape. Mm -hmm. First, because I've never seen vineyards. Mm-hmm. So this is what I'm calling the short trees because I'm tr- driving with the bus. I'm like, so there's a lot of fields of these short trees, which I didn't know what they were. Um, and the place is so mountainous. When you're in the bus, you can't see the end of the mountain because just big mountains. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oh this place. 
and I arrive um, in, 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 in Cape Town. And so the guy who had recruited us, Jablani, has organized somebody to pick me up and take me to his house in Mumsbury. Mumsbury again is another deep Afrikaans uh, suburb. Okay. Or, yeah. So we get there, or it's a, it's a farming area, actually. We get there, and I'm like, I need to go buy bread and buy tomatoes because he wasn't in the house. So I need to buy something that we're going to eat because uh, there was another student who had arrived just like me. So I walk to the shops. You are still buying over the counter. So I get to the shop and I realize nobody speaks English. <laughs> the first encounter of proper Africans. Um, and then I'm like, okay, what do we call bread in Africans? I had to try and think now what was bread in Africans and what was tomatoes in Africans. You couldn't Google it. <laughs> nope. I, I don't have a phone, you know, though. Yeah, yeah I couldn't do it. So I was like... What was bread in Africans? I had to try and think. And then I remembered. And then so I just said the word because you're buying over the counter. It wasn't at shops where you nowadays you go and pick up what you want. So then I call over the counter, just call the bread. And then they, I don't know if they were asking me something else. And I was like, I just like literally taking the bread and, walk, and pay and walk out because I was like, damn, okay, this is going to be hard. So that this was the moment. Is, this is going to be hard. But, anyways. And then the university starts. So we're starting at the university and I start, um, I remember standing above the library and I'm seeing the sea of white people because like, oh my goodness, I'm lost. And there was this one lady who came, a black girl at Tulaniani. She's like, can I help you? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, absolutely. I'm looking for this place. I couldn't pronounce the name. And then she's like, I'm also going to the same hall. And so we go. When I get there, I find another stu other students who were recruited like me to come and study the same course. Then we get to the hall, the lecturer starts speaking. And I realize I'm clueless of what he just said. So he talks and then you hear people laughing and then you look around. Okay, there was a joke. And it's only when everybody stood up and then you're like, oh, they're done. Oh, wow. And then reality hits and <laughs> then it started to sink. Oh, my goodness. What's going on here? So, yeah. That had to have been, uh, I mean, here you are, you have this opportunity, you know, you're so excited. And, you know, we all, everybody I interview has this moment where we fake it until we make it. But that's a pretty, that's a pretty big fake it till I make it moment. Um, that's a thing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty daunting. It, it was daunting. It was, you know, when you realize, because I think because beginning of the year, students who are on board, then it's not the everyone, not everyone is back at the university. So it's only a few people. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll see a black person walking somewhere, I'll, you run to them. And because I'm from the village, in my mind, I still think everyone speaks Zulu. Okay. This is me, I run to someone because they're black, and then I'm thinking they're Zulus, and then I go speak Zulu, and then the person doesn't understand me. So I need to speak English. My English is still not, you know. And I realize, oh, there's other countries. <laughs> <laughs> There's other countries other than Zulu. There's other, you know, languages other than Zulu. Okay. You know, there's... And then... And, and luckily, it was um, people from North Africa. And so they understood the dynamics of, of Stellenbosch University. So, and they would help and navigate, you know, and help us and makes us see, that, okay, no, I can help you here. I cannot help you here, you know. So it was like... And, and you could see, Shem, though, of course, 
for them that postgraduates. So postgraduates, um, certain they, they they've been taught in English, but if you're an undergrad, obviously it's Afrikaans, and so yeah. So what did you do? How did you get through this? So um, I think so. With all that happening, I remember when the university then op- when the second year students and third years when everyone was coming back, then I started seeing black people who are locals who speak Zulu or Xhosa and other languages which are uh, um, South African languages. And because it was like just daunting everything, I remember one of the girls, she said to me, you know what, what's going to help you? You need to seek uh, counseling um, because I got accommodation at the hostel. So now I'm staying within in the hostel. And then she's like, you're going to need to get some counseling the way you're stressing, you know. And then I get counseling. I remember my first meeting with the counseling people. I said to them, listen, I'm going to fail and the university is going to kick me out of the university and I'm not going to go back home. So you need to help me. And they were like, but there's nothing we can do. And at that moment, immediately they said, there's nothing we can do. I was crying because I'm thinking, I'm going to fail. you telling me there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and they were like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, if you fail, we're going to write a letter to the university. They won't kick you out. They'll give you a second chance. But you're going to need to be coming to see us every week. We're going to have an appointment. You're going to need to come in, you know. And were they, were they teaching you Afrikaans? Is that what the counseling was for? Or was no, just the counseling, your... yeah, counseling is just to, you know, because I think it was also understanding that, you know, you're the first person going to university at, at home. And so there is no guidance to say, okay, uh, this is how it's done, you know. Uh, and also with the fact that I'm in a completely different environment, there's a different culture, everything is different in the space I'm in. And so somebody has to hold my hand and guide me because everything is new. So um, then it helped with to seek counseling. So then I used to go to counseling and I even told them, okay, I needed another job. And so I, was, I ended up working at the counseling, basically data capturing Okay. Um, because I needed extra cash. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I need to get some extra cash so that I can help at home um, financially. And I also got another job within the the university to help a master's students on their, whatever, on their uh, experiments. And I was working part-time at one of the wine farms, <laughs> Delheim Wines. So it was like now trying to navigate and doing all these things. But I think seeing them also, it helped me to focus on my studies because now I know I've got a backup so I can relax because I'm like, I'm going to give my all. If I fail, I know that I'm not going to be kicked out. So I think studying while in a relaxed mode, it helped me a lot because, a then I, yeah. because I had a safety net. So then I passed. Yeah, that's great. So I passed my first year and I was like, fantastic. I mean, the stakes are high, you know, for you. And it sounds like you rose to the occasion. probably past this at this point in your timeline, but I am curious, when was the moment being somebody who was coming into a profession that you didn't really understand that you first tasted wine, that that you understood what wine was? And, and was that a moment for you that was like, aha, or were you just like, okay? 
So um, I think, okay, on the first time that I have to taste the wine, so arriving in Stellenbosch, because I arrived at the house of the guy who recruited us, Jablani. So, and again, this makes me realize every time I meet people who are wine connoisseurs, sommeliers, and everyone else who's in the wine space, when they explain wine to, I'm going to call it to the normal people, I'm going to include myself in that at that time because people will talk about fruits. They talk about my understanding of fruit at that moment is that it's nice and sweet. And people will talk about all these characters they talk, but they talk about the nice stuff. And so when I remember when he was explaining, so we have in this red wine in the glass and he's talking about plums and all. And then you're thinking, yeah, that's going to be lovely. Can you just shut up? Let me taste Let You know, you're thinking all this thing in your head and then he swells it. You know, he's making it all look beautiful. You know, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And I'm like thinking, so in a hurry to taste this. And then I take one sip and then realize it's the most horrible thing I've ever had. And I'm thinking... <laughs> Okay, and so I say to him, so is this what I'm going to be studying? And he said, yes. What do you think? What do you think? You know, with excitement, I'm like, it's nice. But I'm thinking at the back of my mind, oh, hell, this is horrible. <laughs> but I couldn't, the way he was so passionate about it, the way I was so excited about it, I couldn't really say to him, oh, dude, this is horrible. Because <laughs> I didn't want to burst this bubble. Yeah, or get kicked out of the system. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. oh. Like thinking, so is it what people drink, really? Like, do they really drink this? And this is what I'm going to make. So it was not love at first sip? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. So so what I did, though, when I was at Varsity, I started working part-time at, at Delheim Wines. That's where I learned more about wine. That's where it was like a year later, then I chose the wine that I liked. Interesting, it was a red wine. It was a Shiraz. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is nice. You know, so, but it was really understanding, okay, I'm, I'm here to learn. And I think coming from outside the industry and not growing from the industry and coming from a different culture, it helped me, I think, even when I'm looking at the wine today, I look at it in a different way because it's my, my understanding is it needs to represent what I know and it needs to represent who I am at that moment and understand that it's a snapshot. So I think, we, and that applies with the realization when I was doing tastings, because I remember at my first my uh, first job, the first few months after starting to work, my boss takes me to a wine tasting. He's like, we're going to go to a wine tasting and then I'm getting there, there's wine journalists, there's, you know, all the wine connoisseurs. It's all nice and fun. Okay. And people are talking about truffles. I'm like, ooh, chocolate. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm picking up truffles. I'm picking up this and this. And I'm like, at that moment, the intimidation. And you're thinking, smelling this, I'm, I'm not getting, I'm getting something else. But then what I'm getting is something that I know from my childhood. So then it was that realization that when I'm tasting wine, just retrieving my memory, mm-hmm. nobody's memory. Mm-hmm. It's going to be my memory that I'm saying, what is it that I'm picking up here? Something that I know I mustn't try to figure out because I'm not going to figure up fruits that are grown in Asia, which I, where I've never been. You know, if I've never right. been to that, I don't fruits that I don't know, you know, or the food that I've never eaten. Yeah. So. I mean, I always, when I'm, you know, talking or teaching classes or whatever, I, I 
always think or explain to people that I think that is one of the scariest parts about learning about wine is picking up, you know, certain aromas or flavors. And I feel like it's the one that freaks people out the most, which yeah. is ironic because it there actually aren't any rules. Like you can literally say it's, you know, like chew juicy fruit bubble gum on a mm. hot asphalt day. It, you know, I mean, there are no rules, I think, to take that kind of rigidness out of it. And and, and it's all sense memory. You smell, yes. you remember, and, and you can say what you want to say. And, and I, I think though it's, it, it's because of us people who have been in the industry for a long time, we make it look so rigid to the people who are entering. Because now we sh- it, we're not making this as accessible as it should be. We, 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 we're creating these boxes that people should tick when they're tasting wine. We're creating these boxes that uh, when they're pairing the food, they, it should tick. They should tick. So in that way, a person feels like I need to be here. You know, I remember when I started, when I was a student, they will talk about, okay, here's what uh, the wine, we're smelling the wine. And I was thinking, all these fruits, I've never eaten them. You know, I had to go to the supermarket and hopefully nobody was seeing me and pray nobody sees me because I keep on picking up each fruit and smell while I'm looking around. I'm smelling the fruit and put it down and then you look around, you go pick up another one and you smell. Because I could first, I couldn't afford to buy <laughs> I couldn't afford to buy the fruits. So I'm like, I'll smell it then <laughs> and leave it there and walk around. You Expensive know? fruit salad for dinner. Yeah, you know, I, I so, hear you. I, I mean, I actually, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's basically what I've built my whole wine career philosophy on is, is you know, stepping away from these boxes that you have to tick and letting wine be accessible. And, and as you, and as I meet, you know, winemakers every day, they're really hard workers and down to earth and it's it's not them that are, are doing this to the wine industry no it's not no. you know it's not um so it's it's basically the, the people who are sometimes who are connecting the the the, the winemakers to the consumer and the consumer get intimidated because a person feels like okay if i'm buying i remember when i started people used to say to me so now does, does it mean i must go buy the food that is written on the bottle and I'm like, no, I love dumplings. My grandmother used to make dumplings with chicken curry. And, you know, I, I love that. And if I've got that, that's what I'm going to eat with my wine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go to the shop and look for something. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm using what I have and then I'm checking what works because we, we deal with different things. I remember there was a chef um, in Johannesburg, uh, Philip, who was French, and when he was doing a food pairing, with my wines, I remember he went and looked for amadumbe, which is the traditional vegetable from Guazulu Natal, and he will use sweet potatoes. He will, he will try and use those things that I grew up with and present them at the cuisine. And so for me, that was like, oh my God, this is beautiful, you know, because that's what I eat. And I'll, I'll do, I do um, pap, which pap is like grits, but much softer. Mm-hmm. I do that with chakalaka. Chakalaka is like spiced with carrots. It's got carrots. It's got beans, tomatoes and onions. Like it's a nice little stew, which with, which with spicy. And so I'll have that and a, and a piece of meat. And then I'll have a glass of wine. That's my daily meal. I'm not going to go. But again, and I think traveling and going to different places made me realize certain things. People always talk about Sangiovese. It goes very well, tomato-based meals. 
And then when I, I learned and realized, oh, the base meal of Italy is to me. <laughs> no wonder. So why are we having our wines and saying have to try and figure out what food it goes with? Because they paired it with the food of their own space. Yeah. And then now we're all saying, yes, it goes well. We can try it with food in our own areas too. I agree. And not not every pairing is also going to be this most harmonious, perfect thing. Exactly. I, you know, I mean, sometimes it's more interesting when it's not. Exactly. Uh, exactly. The best pairings I've had are the ones that I haven't expected, like sake and cheese and, you know, random you stuff know? that I'm like, this is interesting. This is a third taste, you know. Exactly. And I, I love that. I, I did, when I was in Japan, when was it? A uh, couple of years ago, when my wine went to Japan. So... I went there because I, I go everywhere my wine goes. Mm -hmm. So I follow my wines. And so um, the chef was making spicy noodles, pairing it with cab. Mm. I remember looking at that and I was like, hmm. And then came the moment of truth. It was the most beautiful pairing. Really? It literally enhanced the fruit of the cab. And it even made as if it was a bit sweeter. And I was like, like, I literally became emotional with it. And I was like, God, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. They did not try to say, okay, fine. We must go look at the food at the West or the South African food to see how it's going. They were like, what is our Japanese meal that we do that can work here? You know, and that for me was just the most beautiful thing. I love it. I think I know what I'm having for dinner for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Spicy noodles and cab. So it, it is phenomenal. So for me, I think the journey of wine has been really educational every second. Um, hence, I think I enjoy even more coming to the market because, you know, what we make the wine, we need to understand we're making the wine for the people. We're making it for ourselves as winemakers. But when we share it with the people, it yeah. just it creates something different, you know. Back to the journey of wine, <laughs> <laughs> your journey of wine. So you're in college. You obviously made it through the university. So yeah. were you studying for what, the average like four years? Is that how long yes. it took? Y yes. So you graduated what, around 2003? Yes, I graduated 2003. I started working in 2004. What did you do between that, that year? 2003 to 2004. Yeah, no, I graduated 2003, December. And then, oh, and then, and then jumped February, right in. I jumped in. Beautiful. Yeah. So you got a job at Stella Kaya, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your time there. So I worked at Stella Kaya for about 13 years. 13? 13, yes. Wow. <laughs> so what I did, I think one of the things, because I knew that at some point I want to start my own company. So when I was working at Stilikaya, um, what I did was basically to make sure that I work in all aspects of the business. And I was lucky. And I always, I was like, I always say to myself, I'm the most blessed person I know in this planet. Because I wanted to work in a small company so that I can be able to do everything. Mm -hmm. And that happened. So I was involved from the vineyards to the bottle to the market. And that taught me a lot about really running a business. And I was having a boss who was not a boss in a way. Because, yeah, he wasn't. He was a leader. Mm -hmm. Because I would be sitting having a meeting with the client or with the supplier. And he taught me things like, and he would walk in and said, oh, can I make you guys coffee? 
you know. And I remember when he asked at some point, so I was sitting with this guy and he comes, can I make you coffee? And I'm like, oh, I would like some tea. And then the guy orders whatever he wanted to order. And then the guy goes, who's that? And I'm like, it's my boss. He goes, what? And I was like, yeah, it's my boss. Like, did he just come and ask us for tea? If you can make us. And I said, yes, he did. You know, so and and that those are things I learned from him to say, you know what? We're all in this. So there's there's no hierarchy in this. Let's just let's we all have a job to do. Mm-hmm. Let's go on with it. Let's assist it out where we can and, you know, and do the work. And he was I think I remember one of my former colleagues. She asked me, she said, who are your two role models? She was writing a thesis for her master's degree. And she said, uh, in, in the interview she was doing with me, she's like, so who are your two role models? And I said, it's my grandmother and my boss. So she <laughs> she laughed at herself because she said, oh, my word, so different, black and white. And she goes, oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. I said to her, I'm like, I understand what you mean. It's just that when you say it like that, literally now I'm realizing what it is what you're saying, but I know what you meant, you know. And she's like, no, I, did. I was like, yeah, I know what you're saying. Because honestly, it's like my grandmother, um, she she doesn't have a, a, an educational background or anything or business, whatnot. This person is on the other spectrum, business-minded, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I said, because they both carry two important things for me, you know. It's like this one's got this mind of doing things in a certain way. And this one's got this grounding and also this thing of touching things and they tend to gold. So for me, that matters. And so I said, so these are, that's why I'm saying these are the two role models of mine. So the head mm. and the heart. Exactly. You know, so uh, it is, it is, it is just, um, yeah. That's beautiful. So during this long time there uh you said you were doing everything i'm just curious is there's something that really resonates to you the most in this kind of you know all-encompassing you know wine business did you really enjoy being out in the fields and in you know the lab and the winery or out in the market it's the combination everything for me it was the combination i enjoyed being in the field and i enjoyed being playing with the wine but at the same time, when I get to the mark, so it's like, unless it's the whole line, it wasn't fulfilling, you know, because when I'm in the cellar, I need to step out of it. And then when I get to the consumer or get to my clients, we'll be tasting wine, we're having fun. And then at the same time, there are these unspoken words that people have when they're having a glass of wine. They can tell you stuff, but they're those unspoken words, which you find them that even more deeper than the spoken words. And people will just taste the wine and, you know, Example, just now when I was doing my tasting in London, I laughed because there was this lady who was doing the skin contact Chenin Blanc. So she tasted the wine and she was quiet and she was holding her hands up. And like you could see there's a conversation going on there. And then later we're like, geez, we just had a moment. You know, <laughs> literally there was, she, was, she had a moment. And I was like, whoa, you know, that was beautiful. Yeah. Just to observe, to see that. All so, that work just put into a glass. Exactly. So for me, it was like, it was just beautiful. So those, it's a whole chain. But one of the things I don't, <laughs> the only part I don't enjoy, 
um, beside administration. <laughs> Still yet to meet a winemaker who loves admin. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but we do it because we have to do There's no work that can be done without administration of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the paperwork and stuff. Uh, I'm not a fan. But, I mean, anything when we have to do the business part of it as a winemaker, it's very hindering. But you have to do the business part of it because I need to understand my budgets. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to stick to my budget. Or if it my pass my budget, I need to make sure that all balance is up. But when I was at Stilica, I realized, because I was getting more involved even on the financial side, and I realized that it was becoming difficult for me to request barrels because now I know how much is in the bank. I know how much is going to come in. So I'm thinking, if I'm asking for money now, that's going to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I remember saying to my boss, I don't know. If it, I think I agreed to be involved. And then after a while, I realized this is hindering me. And I was like, I don't want to be involved in finance. <laughs> and he goes, but you have to be involved in finance and understand what's happening. I was like, I know, but it's blocking me because now I can't ask certain things because I know what's happening in the bank. And because I think I like it that way. I was like, I don't. I don't. Because, yeah. you know, so so that's how I basically learned everything. Mm-hmm. It's still like it prepped me to basically start my own business. Mm-hmm. But also while I was working, I made sure that I visited different um, countries for in, in winemaking. Um, I did my harvest in France. I did Italy. I visited New Zealand, a little bit in Australia. And then I visited California. Yeah. And then I did my collaboration wine with an American winemaker, Helen Keplinga. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's based in Napa. So we did two vintages together. Um, and then I did one consultation in France. So, yeah, in Bordeaux, right? Yes, yes. So what was it like in these different cultures? So at this at this time, you were you're kind of just still at Stella Kaya, but you'd kind of break off and, and do harvests in other, yes. you know, hemispheres. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what was, you know, it like being in these different countries you know, making wine was it radically different, or was it? I think no, I didn't found it found it radically different. Um, I think, especially with France, I think one France and Italy. For me, it was. <laughs> I realized that their cultures I enjoy the most. Whenever I go to a country, it's not really about the work itself; it's about the people. It helped me to understand myself even more. That when in a place. The people are not nice. When in a place I feel, mm, then it's not, it's not it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not really about the wine. And I realize that the environment matters the most to me than the work itself. Um, so when I was in France, I really I, I enjoyed being with the people. I enjoyed the food. I enjoyed like the way they were doing things. We all go to the vineyards, we harvest. I love the culture of sitting all of us together at lunchtime and have lunch. Mm-hmm. Vineyards people, cellar people sitting together, having lunch with a glass of wine and then spread it out again, go back to our work. And that was for me, wow, that was beautiful. And we did the same thing in Italy. And I was like, why are we not doing like that in South Africa? You don't? No, we don't. And I don't think if, even in California they do it. No, they're probably working a little harder. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, we actually, when it's harvest, we like, and we're like, mm, what do you do? Can <laughs> we, <a> can, can, <laughs> can we, you know, you know, so yeah. that, that was a thing. But I realized that those are things that we do differently. 
But in terms of winemaking, um, I didn't really find much of the difference, you know. Interesting. So um, some people, some some sellers that are more technologically advanced, mm-hmm. some are not. Um, we all have different styles, but it's just at the end of the day, it's the beautiful liquid in the class. get to your beautiful liquid in the glass which is Aslina now (laughs) (laughs) so you were you were at Selakai for 13 years when was the moment and I mean you always wanted to have your own business and you really gave them a big chunk of your you know career uh when was that moment when you're like now is the time for me to break off so in 2011 I remember I asked my boss I said I'm thinking of starting my own business and have my own wine. And he said, yeah, all winemakers do that. And I was like, you know, I, you, you go to someone, you're expecting a pushback. And then he goes, oh, yeah, all winemakers do that. And I was like, oh, okay, that that wasn't difficult, you know. And then and I made one wine that time, but like, and then I stopped. And then I was trying to write my business plan, doing stuff, you know, getting all excited. That was 2011, 12, and then I met Mika Bulmash from Wine for the World. Okay. She's my importer in the East Coast. She works with uh, Emmy Atwood here. Mm-hmm. So she told me about this collaboration idea that she has, and I was like, oh, absolutely, I'm in. And then I started the collaboration wine in 2014 and 2013 and 2014. So this by collaboration, you were just kind of making wines for her to bring to market? Or? Um, it, well, I was making the wines with with Helen, and then she was bringing the, the wine. California. Yes. Oh, okay. And I she see. was bringing the wine to the market. Got it. Um, but it was, her aim really was to assist me to get to the market. So what she, her target was to say, I want to help the winemakers from uh, countries that are not really popular to bring them to the U.S. So that's how I started. And then the profit that came from there is what really helped me to start as lean. Um, so we did the collaboration wine, and then there was 2013 and 2014, there was some of the wine that was left on the cab, and then I bottled that all the first cab. There was a 2014 cab that fell, that was under Aslina. And then 2015, I did the Bordeaux blend um Sasane. And then 2016, I had the Sauvignon. 2015, also I did the Sauvignon Blanc. And then 2016, I did Chardonnay. So I brought the three wines into the market, but Chardonnay only came the following year. So um, These are wines that you're making in South Africa? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I did that. Um, How were you getting the fruit? How were you uh, finding your short trees? (laughs) (laughs) So when I started, because then what I did is I bought some of the wine from Stelica and the wines I've been making, and I spoke to my boss, can I buy some of the wines here if there's extra wine that I can you know, for myself that I've made. And I could no, that's fine, you know. And so I could do that and then um, from other farms. And so I did that and blended the wines and then basically started in the market. 
Okay, so that's when that was when Aslina came. Yes, um, and, and interesting. I think this is what I, li- I, I liked. We were laughing. I was laughing about it at some point. You know, life is exciting. Life is interesting. Uh, when stars aligned, things happen. So it was when we just finished the second collaboration. We just we blended the second collaboration in 2014. I was in California because I did that blending here in California with with Helen. And then so we, so Mika tells Helen, oh, and so she's starting her own brand. And then she's like, oh, what's the name of the brand? And I said, oh, so the company is named after my grandmother. And then she goes, okay, wait, just tell me about your grandmother, actually. So we're sitting at, at, at Helen's house at the back, just having supper. And then so I tell her about my grandmother. And then like we talk and talk and talk. And then she's like, so what's your grandmother's name? And I'm like, Aslina. And we, all of us, it was Helen, her husband, uh, Mika and me. And we all raised our class and said to Aslina. And basically that's how the name was filled. So, yeah. Beautiful story. Uh, I know that she's been a huge support for you. And that's a really nice tribute. Does she love your wine? My grandmother, yeah, she's she's late, but she managed to drink not the Aslina ones, but she had drank the wines I made at Stelikaya. Um, the interesting part of that one was like, uh, so I made a wine that was a 2006 Cape Cross, which was a blend of Pinotage. Um, it had won a gold medal. Mm-hmm. So I got all excited. I took the wine home, I opened the wine, put it in cups, and I was telling her about the wine that got a, got, got a medal, grandma, and all this. So we had to drink it. So she took a sip and she said, it's nice. And her facial expression, you know, when someone has had something that's very sour. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like, but I understood that. And at the same time, I could see the pride in her, you know, in her eyes, in her look of things. She was happy. But yeah, another one didn't. <laughs> so yeah. To each their own. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I'm curious, you know, how difficult is it to uh, start a business, own a business as a, you know, forget a black woman, a woman, period, in South Africa? I think when in 2015 I went to the States, I came here to the States and it was an African Women Entrepreneurship Program. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was before I resigned at my job and probably wasn't planning to resign anytime soon. So... When I was there, we I met different women from the continent. Uh, and for me, it was very interesting at that time that there were women who were running successful big businesses under constraints that as a woman, you cannot register a company under your name because you are a woman. It has to be registered under your husband or your son or whatever. And I was like, do we still have that? It was an eye-opener. And I asked myself, Nsiki, what is holding you back? Why haven't you started your own company? Because in South Africa, you can register your company. You can open a bank account. You can, you know, you can do all these things, but you're not doing them. And I was like, okay, fine. And then there was an intervention. And the intervention was some of these ladies, they were saying to me, what's your problem? And I was like, you know, putting all the excuses I had, it wasn't really excuses. It was if I stop now, how am I going to pay my bond? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? I don't have money in the bank. I don't have savings. I don't, you know, there, there's so many things that were blockages at that moment. And nonetheless, 
That was September. Finished the program, I went back to work. October, November, I resigned. <laughs> I resigned um, because I was like, actually, I do have wine that has been bottled, that is sitting. It's not a lot. Mm-hmm. And I resigned and I tell Mika, I'm like, Mika, I've resigned. Mika goes and says, you know that we, kinda, we, we haven't even started selling your wine. It's not known in the market. So how are you going to survive? And I was like, hey, we'll see. My mentor in the UK, he's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it's going to work, but I don't know how. It's like, I know it's going to work, but I don't have the steps of the how. But I feel it that once I throw myself in it, it's going to work. And Mika says, okay, fine. I'm going to buy part of the wine. You're going to need to come and sell it on the market. I was like, okay, fine. And I think one of the things I learned is building relationships in life is very important. Being honest and truthful is very important. Being yourself, because you need to know who you are and stay grounded uh, on on your values. While I was working at Selikaya, uh, suppliers, they knew when they're not going to be paid. I spoke to them and I was honest because, you know, the accounts people can tell you, yeah, I will pay you, but they don't, or, you know. Mm-hmm. And the suppliers will come to me and they're like, hey, your, your accounts department is not did, did, did. And I'm like, okay, just hang on. And then I'll come back to them. I'm like, hey, listen, you're not going to get paid. They said you're going to be paid next week. No, you're not. Let's be clear here. We, you're not going to get paid. There's money coming at that time. I'm going to try and make sure that you get paid, even if you're going to get paid 5%, 10% of the invo- But I'm going to make sure that you get something. I had to get involved on the accounts that, guys, I'm okay if you don't pay people full amount, but let's have a conversation with our suppliers. Can you pay them, like, give that one two cents, that one three cents, that? I said, let's do it like that. But let's keep on, you know. And I'll be honest and tell them the truth. And so when I started Aslina, I went to one of the suppliers. I'm like, listen, I need to buy bottles. I can only pay you in four months. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have money right now, but I've, I've got an order. Here's the order. But I need to bottle this one for it to go so that I can go sell it. You'll get your money in four months' time. And I remember the guy for, it was African seller suppliers. So I was like, okay, fine. I know we've been working well. I know you've been honest with me when I can't get paid. I went to the cock camp and I'm like, can I? same thing. <laughs> same thing. Yeah. And they're like, okay, you know. And I went to um, the capsule company. I was like, listen, I know the capsule are not that expensive, but I need this volume. I know they come in this volume. And he was like, I don't break boxes, but it's fine. I'll break it. Wow. Okay, thank you. You know, so it it, it was that. And then one of the, um, the the wineries, the high road, I remember, he was like, Chana, how much do you want me to borrow you? And I was like, <gasps> so that caught me off guard completely because I was like, how much do I want to borrow? <laughs> I know I don't want to go to the bank. I was clear with that one. Mm-hmm. I don't you did wanna, not want to go to the bank. I didn't. You wanted to self-finance. I didn't because I was like, I don't want no interest. Mm-hmm. I was open to interest-free loans, but I don't want. I know the bank is not going to give me that. Yeah, I think we're all open to open interest-free loans. So he's like, "So I can borrow money. You pay when you can." It's like, "Geez, are you for real?" You know. And I told him how much I needed, and he's like, "Okay, fine." And he transferred the money, and I was like, "Oh my god!" 
And then I spoke to my importer in Texas. I said, can you please buy enough for me to get my flight? <laughs> and then he buys about 20 cases. And I said to him, you're going to regret this part. So he buys a few cases, but I get my flight ticket. I fly over. So Mika gets more wine. She's like, okay, you're going to come and we sell it. I said, okay, cool. And then I get to Texas. We sell the wine, like literally three stops. The wine was sold. Uh-huh. And he says, you told me. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so basically I had to try and make sure that everything gets self-financed. And so I worked the streets and that helped to actually be able to pay people back, build that relationship and do all those things. That's amazing. So um, I think one of the things for me, it's important to, things have happened because also building, as I said, building the relationships and being honest. Yeah, and, you know, you're clearly a hard worker and you're out there, you know, hustling and, and you make great wine, which always is going to help a lot, you know, yes. for the consumer. The, the proof has to be in the, the pudding. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then through the years, you've also gotten, you know, so many accolades and awards. I mean, maybe more to, to mention here, Googler, it's, it's prolific, <laughs> lots of awards, you know, most influential women in business, things like that, like good stuff. Uh, and I know that it's also been important to you to kind of like take this role and um, do something to better, you know, the opportunities that you might not have had in this industry. So I just wanted to touch like really quickly, like I know that you sit on the board of uh, Pinotage Youth Development Academy. Like how important since you've had, you know, these kind of like, little angels along the way help you? How important is it for you to kind of pass that and pay it forward to the younger generation? It it is very important. It is very important because one of the things I know is that sometimes you might not get direction, but if there's someone, it's it's better when when I say I've given someone direction and they didn't take the direction, other than to say, no, I watched, you know. Um, I give what I feel I should have or I've had, I received this, so how can I help the other person? It might be different the way I'm helping. So what we do at PYDA, basically we're training young people through the value chain of the wine industry, and then we do job placements. Mm. Um, But for me, the most important part of the course is not the technical part, is the personal development. Because I think even as adults, if we can have that, because there's so many of us who are still stuck in our little kids inside and we don't explore and try to be ourselves in a bigger space. So um, what I like about our students is that they come into the academy. We've got a really intense recruitment process. But once they get recruited, they are on board. They come in, they, the presentation is not as much. They're not confident about confident about themselves. There's all these things. So there's coaches, there's mentors, there's uh, you know everything that gets done at the academy. And by the time a person leaves, they can stand up and say, "I don't like one, two, and three. It doesn't make me feel good. So how do I change that?" You know, they, they they've got that confidence to say, "I've got a torch, so I can be able to run this race." I might not have a space for now, but I'm going to build it. So that is what we want to have that confidence of saying, 
of not saying that the world is collapsing, but of saying, you know what? These beautiful pieces that are falling, actually they're going to get shaped in a different way so that they can build something beautiful. Yeah, that's great. I mean, confidence is one of the most important tools for a lot of entrepreneurs and, you know, people in business and in many roles. And it's just confidence is not something that's really taught. I feel like it's nurtured. and, and that's, Yes, that's the thing. You can't, you can't teach that. That's why I'm like, you cannot have the technical skills, but if you are confident, if you have this inner person being strong emotionally, then that have the self-esteem and that person will be able to go get the technical skills somewhere. They'll find them. I can't wait for this generation to start making wine. Uh, so all really, I mean, I know we've just scratched the surface of your life and it's been really great. I just, to bring us into the present, I am kind of curious really quickly, you know, I read about in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, how hard it hit South Africa in particular. And I just wonder what that was like for you. Was that a scary time? I know we're kind of still in it, but we're coming out of it, um, you know, making wine. And I know you had a hard time selling wine at one point. And what was that like for you? I mean, it was scary everywhere, I feel like, but it seemed like particularly scary there as a business person. I think <laughs> when I always look back at that one week, the first week of it, mm-hmm. when we got the lockdown. I've never been so scared in my life. I could see, because initially our government didn't regard the wine industry as an agricultural sector. So we're like, no, you're not in an essential um, industry. So you don't have to open. You must close. This is right in the middle of the harvest. Ugh. So this is me looking. So if we cannot finish the harvest, we've got wines in the tank that are going to get wasted. You could grapes in the vineyards that are going to go down the hill. And I was like, we're not going to survive this. I was like, the government is killing us. <laughs> because <laughs> what do you do? And even the big wine guys? They... Like no one was supposed to oh. operate. That, that like, I was like, we're so tiny, like... I was like, when you like literally like starting to put your foot up front and then this happens. And I just saw the whole company going downhill in the pit and get buried. It was scary. And then the the wine industry heads, they started lobbying the government to explain. And then, then we were allowed to finish the harvest. Okay. So then I was like, okay, fine. As long as we've got the wine, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. As like, we might not be able to, but at the end of the day, we'll still start and continue as long as the wine is there to sell when we come out. And then, obviously, then there was lockdown of you can't sell, you can't export. And I was like, okay, maybe we can do it online. Nope, you can't do that online. <laughs> not even online. <laughs> so, um, so then... And then two or two, two weeks later, then or three weeks later, they're like, okay, fine, you can export. And you're like, okay. Okay, fine, we're not selling locally. But obviously our local market, we just started selling local, so we didn't have much of the local market. But so when we were allowed to export, I was like, oh, thank God. So then we could export. And I'm really grateful to the international market because 
they understood that, okay, South Africa cannot sell. So how do we help to keep especially the small guys running to, you know. So then we started getting um, orders out and we had to start peddling and also trying to get more clients abroad to actually buy our wines. So, and even the, the local market was so helpful because they were saying, okay, fine, even if you can't sell, we'll buy and then we'll deliver when it opened. We don't know when, but let's try and see what we can do. And so the local market was ordering and doing all those things. And literally, they it helped. Our local market grew, even though they were getting their wine like two months down the line while they've paid, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember reading about it and, you know, everybody, you know, has their own experiences of that, that time and, you know. Thankfully, here in Los Angeles, everybody still really wanted to drink their wine. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, that that was that just seems so scary. But I'm glad you came through it. So now, um, you know, what are you what are you up to? What's next? Where where do you see yourself going and growing? So we, we I think as a company, we're still a small company, excuse me. And we're trying to we've, we don't have our own facility. Mm-hmm. We don't have our own vineyards. So we're hoping to grow to a point that we can be able to have our own space, our own facility, a home, a place we can call home so that people can come and visit us and taste and go through the cellar and do all those beautiful things, you know. So we're hoping to have that, um, but that depends on our growth, obviously. So we have to go out there, sell the wine, talk to our customers, come talk to our friends and family, talk to the Aslina Wine Gang and, you know, and grow like that. So with that, it will help us to actually be able to get the facility at some point. Well, let's all do our part, everybody, and drink Aslina Wine so she can yes. get herself some more small trees and a, and a <laughs> I place my, to call home. My, my small, my small trees. I'm going to yes. call them that for a while. <laughs> they're just... They're just small trees, and that that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking. This has been great, and I can't wait to talk to you again and enjoy your trip in, in the States. Thank you very much for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Winesplaining. Be sure to check out more episodes available wherever you love to listen and feel free to subscribe and review if you dig these women's stories. You can also check us out and learn more and get the haps at our website, winesplainingpodcast.com and social media handles, Winesplaining Podcast. And if you want to taste these wines with a story, head over to vinovore.com. You can shop online for pickup, shipping, or delivery, or of course, in person at any of our locations.